and gentlemen, welcome to Bard Flies, your reverent and occasionally erudite guide to the plays of William Shakespeare. In today's episode, Shakespeare returns to comedy and discovers that unintentional gaslighting is fun for the whole family, featuring shipwrecks and new highs for fat jokes. I'm Will Quinn. And I'm James Smith. This is episode nine, Wherefore Art Thou, Dromeo? in which we will be talking about the comedy of errors. So if if your mom is my mom, and my dad is your dad, and we're both born on October 11, then you and I are like, like sisters. Sisters. Hallie, we're like twins. James, can you give us the plot summary and a little background? So, times are tough in the Mediterranean, with the Sicilian port city of Syracuse locked in a costly and deadly trade war with Ephesus in Asia Minor. When a Syracusan trader named Egeon arrives in Ephesus, the Duke of Ephesus tells him that unless he can come up with a sizable ransom, the law demands that he be executed. Egeon relates a tale of woe. Many years prior, he and his wife were separated due to a shipwreck. And each one came away with one of their twin infant sons, and similarly twin infant slaves. The duke takes pity and gives Egeon until the end of the day to raise the ransom from any friends he might have in town. The audience quickly discovers that both of Egeon's twin sons are in Ephesus. One of them has arrived that very day from Syracuse himself, engaged in a quest to find his long-lost brother. The other has been living in Ephesus for many years. For reasons that are unclear, and mostly seem to have to do with driving the absurdities of the plot, both are named Antiphilus, and both have in tow their half of the pair of twin slaves that were separated with them, both of whom are named Dromeo. This sets in motion a madcap series of events driven by mistaken identity. Antiphilus of Syracuse sends his Dromeo to the inn where he plans to stay to drop off some gold. Almost immediately afterwards, the other Dromeo shows up, denies any knowledge of the move, and tells Antiphilus that his wife wants him to come home for dinner. Antiphilus thinking Dromeo is being insolent, because of course Antiphilus has no wife, as far as he's aware, beats Dromeo up, the first of many beatings in the play. Dromeo of Ephesus runs home to report Antiphilus's behavior to Adriana, the wife of the other Antiphilus. Adriana is suspicious that her husband is cheating on her, and takes this as confirmation. Dromeo of Syracuse rejoins Antiphilus of Syracuse. Having, of course, no knowledge of the interaction between his master and the other Dromeo, he denies having said anything about a wife. Antiphilus starts beating him up, but he is interrupted when Adriana and her sister Luciana appear. Antiphilus and Dromeo are understandably confused. How do these strange women know their names? Convinced that they are bewitched, they return home with Adriana and Luciana. The focus shifts now to Antiphilus of Ephesus. Contrary to Adriana's belief in his infidelity, we discover that the reason that this Antiphilus has not been home for dinner is that he has been negotiating with a goldsmith to make a necklace, or a chain as it's referred to in the play, for Adriana. That business concluded, he returns home, only to discover the door is locked against him. Enraged, he prepares to knock the door down, but is convinced not to by his friends. Instead, he goes off in a huff to dine at the house of a courtesan. Courtesan being a prostitute, for those who may not be aware. Are we sure he's not having an affair on his wife? <laughs> to be discussed. <laughs> Meanwhile, inside the house, Antiphilus of Syracuse is finding himself deeply attracted to Luciana, Adriana's sister. Dromeo of Syracuse discovers that he already has a wife, whom he promptly and hilariously fat shames to Antiphilus. The pair become even more convinced that they are bewitched and plan to depart Ephesus as soon as possible. 
Dromeo departs to make travel arrangements. Antiphilus of Syracuse is accosted by the goldsmith Angelo, whom the other Antiphilus, you'll remember, had engaged to make the train for Adriana. Antiphilus of Syracuse, baffled, because he definitely didn't ask the guy to make a chain, is forced to accept it, and Angelo says that he will return later to collect payment. Then we're back with Antiphilus of Ephesus. After dining with a courtesan, he dispatches his Dromeo to buy a rope, which he plans to use to beat Adriana as punishment for locking him out of his home. He meets Angelo, the goldsmith, who now asks him for payment. Antiphilus denies, saying that he hasn't received the chain yet. Angelo has him arrested. As this is happening, Dromeo of Syracuse appears, and Antiphilus sends him back to Adriana's house to get money for his bail. But when Dromeo gets the money, he ends up delivering it to his Antiphilus, i.e. Antiphilus of Syracuse. The courtesan sees Antiphilus of Syracuse wearing Angelo's chain and says he promised it to her in exchange for her ring. Antiphilus and Dromeo, ever more spooked by the evident witchcraft around them, flee. Finally, things come to a head in Act 5. Dromeo of Ephesus returns to Antiphilus of Ephesus with the rope that Antiphilus had asked for, but not with the bail money that Antiphilus had asked Dromeo of Syracuse to get. Adriana and Luciana appear with a sorcerer named Dr. Pinch, who tries to exorcise Antiphilus and Dromeo. Antiphilus and Dromeo are tied up and brought to Adriana's house. Then the Syracusan Antiphilus and Dromeo appear, causing terror for Adriana and Luciana. Clearly, Antiphilus and Dromeo have slipped their bonds and come back for revenge. Now Adriana and Luciana try to have the Syracusans tied up, but they escape to a nearby convent. The duke appears, leading Edrion to be executed. At the same time, the abbess of the convent comes out with the Syracusan Antiphilus and Dromeo. The truth is revealed, Edrion is pardoned, and it is revealed that the abbess is Edrion's long-lost wife and the mother of the two Antiphili. Order is restored, and the family goes to celebrate being reunited. And that is the story of the Comedy of Errors. <laughs> My head is spinning right now. It also seems like we could have been spared a lot of this had people just been made aware of the fact that they were um, part of two sets of twins. Correct. <laughs> uh, Will, before we launch into the discussion, do you have any information on the background of this play? Yeah, so just a little bit. Obviously, this sort of introducing of mistaken identities, major part of Shakespeare's repertoire. And a lot of that is actually inspired by and this play, Menechemy, which is by um, Plautus, who is a Roman playwright. And this play is actually a remake of that, and it involves these two nobles who are from Syracuse and from Epitamus, Epitamamus. Regardless, point being, you've got basically a remake of this play, but instead of just the, the one set of twins, you actually have two sets of twins because Shakespeare adds in the slave-servant characters. So it gets rather hectic and rather confusing double the trouble, double the fun in this one. It's also right. worth noting that this play is Shakespeare's return to comedy after a long run of histories and whatever you call Titus Andronicus. So this is what, in 1594, 1595 that this play is written? Yeah, thereabouts. As we know, Two Gentlemen of Verona, the first one was 15, somewhere between 1589 and 1591. So, so Shakespeare is now solidly within the working playwright world, right? He's not quite a fresh face anymore, but he is still in the early part of his career. And he's now, this is the first time we're seeing him going back to a genre that he's already worked in. And those are the first two plays that he did in Two Gentlemen of Verona and uh, The Taming of the Shrew. So just, just wanted to sort of recenter him biographically. 
as we go forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things about this play is, right, so this is like the third comedy we've read, the other two being The Two Gentlemen of Verona and The Taming of the Shrew. We'll get into sort of our assessments of how this stacks up, but I think this play has the most slapstick comedy in it of all of the ones that we've read so far. And I just want to ask, like, how do we feel about that? Can a slapstick play or film or just work of art in general, is there a ceiling to how far it can rise? And also, this goes to the plot device of the twins and the mistaken identity bit. How long does that joke really last in this one for you? So first of all, this play is only 80 pages long, right? And I believe it's actually the shortest play in all of Shakespeare. So it does feel to me like Shakespeare was probably aware that, you know, that this setup could only drive things for so long. That being said, I don't think that it can, even for, you know, for as short as this play is, I think it's still too long. To me, the play's 80 pages long. It was around page 40 where I was like, all right, this joke is played out. You know, we've basically gotten everything we can out of this. For that first half, it wasn't just the mistaken identity stuff. It was this feeling of Shakespeare creating the situation that is putting the Antiphili and the Dromii into this alternate reality, right? Where things are happening, they don't understand what's happening. But everyone else, you know, it's not like a plot, right? It's not like Christopher Sly where the noble is plotting to make him believe that reality is something different. It's everyone is completely in earnest. And so there was something interesting about that idea, and that I think makes you buy into the comedy of it a little bit more. But it can only last for a little while, right? Before at some point you're just like, why aren't people just talking to each other? I mean, this is like the epitome of the type of play where the plot basically does not need to happen in any way. You're telling me that none of y'all know that you're twins at any point in time. Like nobody told you that even though both of your parents respectively raised you in these different settings. And in fact... Well, no, I mean, obviously, right, we know that they know that they have a twin, right? Because Antiphilus of Syracuse says that he's come to Ephesus looking for his twin. Right, so you would think, like, this would be the most logical explanation. And there, you could probably mine some comedy from that, from people just not really believing him because it's so preposterous. Anyway, I guess all all of which is to say, though, like, yeah, okay, so there's a natural point at which the joke burns out. But it got me thinking about farce as a genre. Mm-hmm. And I think with really talented actors, you could make this work and sustain itself with increasingly madcap antics. If you have people that are really willing to lean into the absurdity and just like almost distract you from the ridiculousness of the plot. So it's not my kind of comedy, to be honest. Although I will say there were a couple points in the play where I did burst out laughing. That said, the points in the play where I burst out laughing were points in the play that really had nothing to do with the comedy of, like, the visual or of the disorientation of this gaslit reality and much more to do with the wordplay and the way things were being put. So so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't know if I'm the right person to ask the question only because this is not a style of comedy that I necessarily react to most of the time. Well, so going back to that, In the parlance of our times, I lolled as well at two moments in the play in particular. And I think we actually share these and these we sort of overlap in the bits that we liked. Do we wanna do we wanna talk through those? Because I think one of those is is pretty funny because I think it does actually touch on this doubling absurdity, but it's more about the way things are being said. 
And the other is just the extended fat joke, yeah. which is just well, totally and, and, out of control. You know, and I think, Will, to be fair, this is relevant to the question you're asking in terms of the type of humor, right? Because, well, let's 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 sort of read them and then we'll talk about them. Sure. So the first bit that I, I think we both laughed at, this is where Dromeo of Ephesus is narrating to Adriana about his mm-hmm. interaction with Antiphilus of Syracuse, who he thinks was his master, Antiphilus of Ephesus. So he right. he's totally confused. And basically this is him narrating his confusion to the wife, who is also confused. I mean, not cuckold mad, but sure, he is stark mad. When I desired him to come home to dinner, he asked me for a thousand marks in gold. "'Tis dinner time,' quoth I. "'My gold,' quoth he. "'Your meat doth burn,' quoth I. "'My gold,' quoth he. "'Will you come home?' quoth I. "'My gold,' quoth he. "'Where is the thousand marks I gave thee, villain?' "'The pig,' quoth I, "'is burnt.' "'My gold,' quoth he. "'My mistress, sir,' quoth I. "'Hang up thy mistress. "'I know not thy mistress. "'Out on thy mistress,' quoth my master. "'I know,' quoth he. No house, no wife, no mistress. So that my errand do unto my tongue, I thank him. I bear home upon my shoulders, for, in conclusion, he did beat me there. My gold! Um, my gold. Where's yes, my gold? There's, there's this funny element, though. We saw this conversation, and that is not exactly how it went down, between that particular pairing right. of servant and master. So the dramatic license is appreciated. So just to tease this out a little bit, Will, obviously the situation is what causes this humor, right? Or or that enables this moment, right? Where this conversation resulted from the situation of the mistaken identity. That said, is the conversation funny because of the element of mistaken identity? Or is it what I think, which is that Dromeo is just reporting an event in a funny way. I think it's more about the the reportage, if you will, mostly because he's also adding his own dramatic license and editorialization on what's going on, particularly the part where he says, the pig is burnt, you know? <laughs> and it's like, hey, yeah, like I've been telling you that this, you know, he compresses the whole story that he's telling in a very funny and humorous way that underscores the ridiculousness of the situation. But it doesn't really have to do with the doubling per se. That's just sort of the spark for the conversation, period. Yeah. In a similar vein, there was another scene where I was trying to understand the question of the comedy, which is if you go to Act 2, Scene 2, actually, it might mm-hmm. even be the same scene. No, no, it's the, it's the next scene, and there's this long discourse between Antiphilus of Syracuse and Dromeo in Syracuse. And this is where they have that back and forth about men going bald and people recovering their hair and you know let's hear it there's no time for a man to recover his hair that grows bald by nature may he not do it by fine and recovery yes to pay a fine for a periwig and you know and they're basically riffing on this idea of hair loss more or less Mm -hmm. and it feels and i guess tell me if you don't agree like this feels like it's meant to be a comic moment right it's like a lot of wordplay a lot of punning and stuff but i didn't find it funny And so I was, you know, in line with the question you're asking, I was like asking myself, is it not funny because of modern sensibilities and we just have to read satire and comedy differently in a way that maybe we don't need to read Henry VI differently? Yeah, I think that's probably right because I I actually think the stuff that makes comedy funny in a lot of the ways Shakespeare uses it 
it's actually very situational in kind of the way Seinfeld wouldn't really make a lot of sense to somebody in the 1950s or probably somebody in the 2050s in a lot of ways. Right. Like a lot of the particulars are bound up in a particular like way of life and series of things well, that are that are not just way of life, I think, but also way of expression. How we think about the, you know, like even the taste for like the curb your enthusiasm, cynical humor, I, you know, not that that necessarily didn't exist in the past, but that's a sort of comic discourse that's very popular today, but maybe wouldn't have been as popular or understood in a different era. And so I wonder if some of this is just that we've maybe outgrown some of the comic discourse of this play. So I think that's true. I also think a lot of the humor around hair loss in this play is about venereal disease. And that's sort of an implication that you can read about in the notes when you're actually looking at the play text in front of you. So there's probably some stuff in there that has more to do with how people understood what all of this concept of hair loss meant at the time. Uh, right. And, you know, and, and, and kind of sort of automatic that. associations, right? Right. Where we can read about it in the notes and understand what he's joking about, whereas someone in the audience would have heard the joke and even without even thinking about it, probably had this whole wealth of associations that made it funny to them. Exactly. And that's what I mean by how Seinfeld probably wouldn't really translate to somebody in the 1950s or the 2050s particularly well, just because like there's a break in some of the the situations and like the comedy is oriented around a very particular moment in time and series of situations that come about. You know but what kind doesn't... of humor doesn't need translation across eras, Will? I'm going to guess your mama jokes and fat jokes in particular. Fat jokes, in fact. <laughs> And boy, does this play have a doozy of a fat joke. Yeah, this is a, this is pretty epic, I have to say. Are, are you ready to talk about this, Will, or did you have anything else? I'm ready to talk about this one because it's probably one of the most laugh-out-loud moments. Attitudes towards fat-shaming aside, it's pretty funny. Well, Will, why don't we just do it together? I would say starting in Act 3, Scene 2, maybe Line 95. The background of this, we didn't really get into this that much in the plot summary, but in the scene where Antiphilus of Syracuse, i.e. the wrong Antiphilus, who is not married, goes to have dinner at the house of Adriana, the wife of the other Antiphilus, his brother, Dromeo, basically Dromeo of Syracuse discovers that Dromeo of Ephesus has a wife, and now the wife believes that he is her husband. And so he has this long disquisition talking about his newfound wife. How does that mean a fat marriage? Mary says she's the kitchen wench, <laughs> all grease. And I know not what used to put her to, but to make a lamp of her and run from her by her own light. <laughs> I warrant her rags in the tallow in them will burn a Poland winter. <laughs> if she lives till doomsday, she'll burn a week longer than the old world. What complexion is she of? Salt, like my shoe. But her face, nothing like so clean kept. For what she sweats, man may go over shoes in the grime of it. That's a vault water woman. No, sir. She's in grain. No, his blood could not do it. What's her name? Nell, sir. A name and three quarters, that's a, an L and three quarters, could not measure her from hip to hip. She is spherical, like a globe. I could find out countries in her. In what part of her body stems island? Mary, sir, in her buttocks. I found it out by the bogs. Where's Scotland? I found it in the barrenness, hard in the palm of her hand. Where France? In her forehead. Armed and reverted, making war against her heir. Where England? I looked for the chalky cliffs, but I could find no whiteness in them. 
I guess he stood in her chin by the salt room that ran between France and it. Where's Spain? I saw it not, but I felt it hot in her breath. Where stood Belgium, the Netherlands? <laughs> hmm? Oh, sir, I did not look so low. <laughs> Yeah, wow, that's uh, that's pretty epic. I mean, this whole thing about the globe and finding the countries in it in particular, I, like the, the stuff before it is funny, but very overt. And the stuff about the countries I thought was very clever and amusing. Yeah, no, I mean, I think those are the two moments that made me laugh as well. I guess kind of what I wondered was, how do you make this play even better? Or how would you adapt this play so you could pull it off today? What would be the uh, the 10 things I hate about you of this play? Yeah, how would you do this? for it to actually make sense and be funny today because you have all these classical references it's based on a play that's considerably older even than Shakespeare where do you go with this one I mean I have some theories but I'm kind of curious what your reaction would be hmm well uh, you know honestly Will I, I almost think there's a a modern version actually might be much darker you know, it might have to do with catfishing or something or mm. gene editing or, you know, it's like some kind of boys from Brazil type stuff. Yeah, yeah. Although I suppose in saying that, that all I'm really getting at is that the same premise could be comic or very serious depending on how it's treated. But I'm really not sure about how this separated at birth type comedy plays in the modern world. Anyway, I'm not really answering your question. Why don't you no, tell me your yeah. thoughts and I'll react. Well, I, those those are very interesting in terms of gene editing, that kind of angle. I was actually thinking in terms of like race relations. So it's a pretty well-known trope that people within a given ethnic or racial group tend to see all of the distinguishing characteristics within that group. But people outside of that group tend to think that everybody looks the same in other ethnic or racial groups, right? That I think is just sort of like an area for comedy here that would obviate the need for everything to be tied up in the two sets of twins separated at birth stuff and could also like open up some unintentional comedy here with people that just don't even recognize the very individuals with whom they interact on a day-to-day -day basis because of their blinders in that way. And I think that would get a little bit at the Ephesus Syracuse thing as well in mm -hmm. that, you know, you've got this... Arcane divide. I mean, the, the first most crazy thing, right, is the opening of this play is the Syracusan merchant basically being hauled up on charges and told he's going to be executed for, like, not paying the tax to be in Ephesus, uh, which is kind of a crazy thing to start off with. In the I, I also need to know this, and this is like a bit of a sidebar, Will, but... I thought it was funny that at the beginning, the Duke is like, the law is higher than me. I can't do anything about it. And at the end, he's like, actually, I'm glad that you guys reunited. You can go free. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's probably one of the things that would need to be addressed in a modern adaptation is like, and I think we've seen this throughout. Shakespeare's not afraid of rickety plotting or, you know, he's not too concerned about making sure that everything makes sense in how the plot setup is done. And I yes. think in a modern context, it would be very hard to get away with that. Yes. I think that's part of the problem is like, you would have to reframe this pretty substantially. Now, I think you could do it because I think either of our suggestions are ways to restage this and reimagine it in a way that might resonate with people a little bit more. Well, what about like an adoption comedy, right? It's a pair of brothers who are separated at birth for adoption. Yeah, that could work too. You know, you know what I was thinking of? There's a documentary I saw a while ago 
that I thought was really, really good. A very powerful film. And it was about those three identical strangers. Came out in 2018. Did you see that one? I am embarrassed to say that I have not seen it, but I, I know of the film for sure. So it's Yeah, so it's kind of an amazing story, right? It's um, about these three identical triplets from New York. And they all end up being adopted by different family members. They're not different family members. They all end up being adopted by different families. One is sort of blue collar, one's middle class, one is relatively wealthy. And they all end up meeting rather randomly because two end up by total coincidence going to the same college. And then the third one, they sort of discover. And the the main background is the adoption agency that was used was separating them from birth for the purposes of some sort of scientific study or something along those lines. Anyway, it takes a very dark turn. You should absolutely watch it, though, because it's both funny and moving and and very sad. But there was something about this, like, concept of the separated at birth thing, where in that particular film, they encounter each other and they, they are interviewing the brothers as when they're older, describing running into each other and, like, the shock and kind of almost disbelief that comes into that. And I think you'd need right. to like deal with some something along those lines. Because if you, like, the main problem to the plot of this play, right, is that one of the Antiphili, right, is showing up, and he knows he has a twin brother, and yet he's completely confounded by the fact Not that only does he know that he has a twin brother, but he's looking for his twin brother. Right, so right? that's the part. Like, that's It doesn't make any sense, right? I think you would need to actually have, like, a true separated at birth people did not know they were part of a twin study and right. make that work, right? But the funny thing is, reading it, I actually think this play, of the three comedies we've read, and this is maybe preempting our play ranking, but it's definitely the best of the comedies we've read, in my opinion. I don't know, what did you, th- what did you I think? I mean, you know, it's there is nothing, as far as I'm concerned, there is nothing in either Two Gentlemen of Verona or... Taking the Shrew, that is as funny as either of the two passages that we were talking about. So the highs are higher. And there's also nothing that's like morally execrable in this play in the way that there is in both of those two plays. Yeah, there's like, there's some slavery and some beatings in this one, but it is not presented in as totally Um, ugly a way as the misogyny in either of the previous uh, two comedies, I would say. I'll also say, Will, that I I think the plot setup is strained and the joke becomes strained, Mm. but the plot makes sense, right? The action of the story makes sense and occurs in a framework that is understandable as a complete story. Whereas, right, when, you know, you remember when we talked about Taming the Shrew, one of the things that we talked about was the way that the central of the action of the play is basically done by halfway through the play. Yeah, no, that's that's right. I mean, I, I feel like in this one, I mean, there's all this stuff that's obviously dated in the sense that it's an update of a Roman play taking place at a completely different era in time, completely different context. Obviously, I mentioned the fact that there's like slavery in the play, which is not great for, you know, staging it today. But it is funnier and better written and less sort of objectionable in a lot of the particulars. There's no way you can like take Taming of the Shrew or The Two Gentlemen of Verona and completely expurgate some of the grossness. Unless you're talking like 10 Things I Hate About You, but that is deviating substantially in terms of the characterization. Right. Like this one you could basically take and run with and like remove some of the weird or objectionable or just not very funny context, and you could reimagine this one, and people would go to see that. 
I still think the mistaken identity double comedy is something you see today, right? Yeah. In various mass market comedies that show up at the movie theater. Stuck on you, for instance. Well, I don't know. They are literally stuck on each other. That is the, right. yeah. the joke of that particular film. But Fair yes, uh, you know. The absolutely. social network. I was thinking, uh, what's the Lindsay Lohan movie? Um, oh the my Parent God, Trap. The Parent Trap. The Parent, yes. Trap. The Parent Trap, a classic, right? That's now, right. you know, it's rather incredible that parents would go to those lengths to not tell their child that they have another twin out there or would come to such a ridiculously immature custody arrangement where each gets a kid and they never talk to each other ever again. But, you know, which thinking back on it, that is pretty absurd concept for a movie. But I, um, I honestly have not thought about the politics of the parent trap ever in my life. And I'm kind of glad you're bringing this up for that reason. <laughs> Nonetheless, well, circling back, and this isn't really related to this question, but I, it's just something that occurred to me just now that I wanted to circle back with about the, about the stuff that is comprehensible and makes sense to a modern audience as opposed to the stuff that is, you know, more time specific. Mm. One thing that did strike me a little bit as maybe being more of the thing that is timeless mm. is the the jealousy of Adriana that we mm. see throughout the play. Do, do you view Adriana's jealousy as partly driving the very results that she's seeking to avoid? Because it was hard for me reading the play to avoid that conclusion. Like her basically being portrayed as a shrew in the play, more or less. I, like I don't even know if like I'd go paranoia. so far as to say that, she, yeah, her paranoia, I think, is a better... Yeah, well, I don't know. I, I kind of am ambivalent about whether Adriana really is actually being paranoid in this play, right? Right. Like, obviously, the particulars of the situation she's dealing with are crazy, and she is not right in her interpretation of them. On the other hand, I gotta say, you know, her antiphilus is... Well, very fond, you know, is, is clearly he's, at the ready to go. He's going to dine. He is going to dine at whorehouses. So yeah, like literally he goes and steals a ring or promises a chain for a ring to a prostitute and, you know, is going to get a rope to beat his wife with. So I, I can't exactly like falter for um, being a little mad at the man. Um, <laughs> so right. there is sort of like some weirdness here where I, I think I almost felt like part of the joke was that she is right. That her husband is kind of a scumbag, right. but maybe she, not for the she's right She's right in, in the wrong way, kind of. <laughs> right. And I, I actually thought that was kind of a funny moment to realize, like, wait, what's this, like, prostitute suddenly doing, popping up in this play, being like, yeah, he came over and, like, hung out at my house, and he, like, took my ring. Where's the chain he promised me? I remember having exactly the same reaction, where I was like, wait, so this was, she was right all along? What? Yeah. And actually, that's... That is the kind of reveal that I feel like is something that I, that that sort of thing does resonate today as well, right? You know, the you thought one thing and you were right, but you were also wrong is kind right. of a fun device. Yeah, yeah. I think it's all about sort of subverting your expectations, right? And I think it actually achieves that quite admirably in that sense. And I, yeah, I thought that was actually like a surprisingly clever thing that's never really, I think like... With some of these comedies, right, Shakespeare, like, has to draw attention to how clever he's being. Mm -hmm. Most of the plot devices are rather obvious. 
a lot of this sort of dialogue is bold exclamation points of repartee, some of which are like really bad puns, some of which are pretty good puns, some of which involve amusing wordplay, such as the scene we read earlier. But that one is just kind of left hanging out there, right? (laughs) In a way where it's like, oh, well, yeah, he, he was hanging out at the house of a prostitute. He was sort of yeah. promising her payment in various ways for certain favors that may be undescribed or undisclosed. And in that sense, it's like he's not really calling a ton of attention to it, but it's just kind of hanging out there. So like, wait, what? What just happened? And I kind of appreciate that. Yeah. Should we rank this one? Yeah, let's do it. So I now and we, we, we've gone a little bit down this road already, but definitely to me superior to the other two comedies we've read. I think also superior to Titus, and I was really waffling on where I feel like it falls in terms of the Henry VI plays, and I think while I think the Henry VI plays are more up my alley taste-wise, I think that this play is nonetheless objectively better than Henry VI Part One, Not Henry VI Part Two, but Henry VI Part One. So yeah, I would I, I would rank it... It would slot in right underneath Henry VI Part Two for me. Yeah, I think that's um, I think that's about right. I agree that I think page for page, it's better than Henry VI Part One, which has like a lot of volume, some of which is really good, but a lot of which is just kind of filler, yeah. uh, or is pretty forgettable. I think there is some stuff in this that's actually memorable. Where it stacks up in terms of Henry VI Part Three. You know, that's a little bit tougher for me. But I, I think I think your ranking is basically right. I, I still think that Richard the Third probably stands at the apex oh, of the sure. pyramid. Oh, for sure. And that Henry the Sixth Part Two is like shortly below it. But this I think is like credibly up there with I realized actually as you're saying this that I erred and I I would put this below Henry the Sixth Part Three, not below Henry the Sixth Part Two. So better than Henry the Sixth Part One, not as good as Henry the Sixth Part Three. Yeah, That's so I, I, yeah, my memory is fading a little bit on uh, Henry the Sixth Part Three, but I think this is probably. I remember thinking that one was was pretty good. Uh, they're probably about equal to me. Comedy mm-hmm. errors might be slightly below, but I think, right. um, you know, I think pound for pound, like for eighty pages of reading, this will take you like an hour and a half or less to read. Probably an hour to read if you're really picking it up. And I actually think that. It's one of the ones that, of the comedies, like, it's not as brilliant, I think, as we will later get to, but it's it's pretty good, and it's definitely the best comedy we've read so far. It's kind of an early commercial, um, yeah, very like, so. low-key commercial masterpiece, maybe not in all of its particulars, but just, like, he's got some skills. For sure. Uh, MVP of this one, Will? Who's your MVP? Oh, God. Well, I think just for that monologue alone, I think it's got to be Dromeo of Syracuse for um, describing all of the countries and relating them to the woman that is claiming that she is his wife. It's not, it's, it's pretty ridiculous and over the top, but just for the lyrical invention there, I have to, I have to give it to him. I have a little bit of trouble remembering which Dromeo did which. (laughs) <laughs> to be honest but uh yes I, I agree with you i think that's only because that is i think the best single part of the play and otherwise the two dromeos are pretty close i would make it dromeo of syracuse as well they're also just funny characters in the sense that i mean this is partially because they're literally enslaved to their masters but they are consistently funnier and wittier i think than either the uh antiphili 
in yeah, practice, for sure. right? Which is kind of a nice little tweaking by Shakespeare using that archetype. But um, yeah. I what mean, do you I think, Will, this is a bit of a digression, I guess. Comparing Dromeo, say Dromeo of Ephesus, but really, really both Dromeos to Lots, head to head, who do you got? Uh, I think it's, I'm going with the Dromeos. I think they're, um, I think Dromeo, both Dromeos, but you know, yeah, Launce and Speed by comparison from the two gentlemen of Rona. I just think that comedy is a lot more um, sophisticated and amusing. And you get the sense that the servants are up there with the masters in terms of their ability right. to engage in the repartee. Launce and Speed are actually like weirdly a lot more in there for... Um, well, they're in a completely different world, right? Like yeah, They're almost exactly. not even in the play, or they're not even in the same play. Almost. They're kind of interstitial, whereas these people are like very much drivers of the action of the play. Right. And if anything, like you could actually see them really being the stars of the show if you were to try and do yeah. this today and, and try and yeah. imagine Comedy of Errors. So. Definitely. All right. Uh, Will, are you reading anything interesting right now? So I am just at the end of a book called The Ambassadors, which is by Paul Richter. And it's in contrast to Comedy of Errors, it is uh, not a comedy. The subtitle is America's Diplomats on the Front Lines. Uh, and it profiles four different diplomats, one of whom I've uh, had the pleasure of, of getting to know fairly well. So it's... um. It profiles basically Ryan Crocker, who is the ambassador to Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan, a bunch of other places. Ann Patterson, who is ambassador to Egypt and Pakistan, most notably. Chris Stevens, who, of course, was the uh, ambassador to Libya, who was killed in the Benghazi oh, yes, attacks. Of and finally, uh, Robert Ford, who you know most famously was the ambassador to Syria when the civil war started. And, you know, as, as I've alluded to a couple of times, you know, having worked as a uh, national security policy advisor in the Senate, you know, I got to travel a lot, particularly in the Middle East and North Africa during my, you know, during my work. And I've got to say, whether you're meeting these folks in or out of a particular country or a war zone, I've really come to admire and respect, you know, the Foreign Service. And in this case, you have four people that are probably among the most talented people we've had in government in the past, like, 40 to 50 years. And to sort of see their stories as people who are taking risks going out there, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing and humbling, even if sometimes the policies that they're being asked to implement are problematic or, you know, might not be always as matched for the times as they should be. But, right. um yeah, I found, yeah, it's it's very it's very moving. We don't necessarily think of our civil service or our diplomatic corps as kind of heroes in the same way that people who put on a uniform do, but they take just as much risk in many cases, if not more so. And um, all and clothing they, is uniform. Well, yeah, I don't agree. forget it. Well, you got to respect these people that are willing to to take on these dangerous missions on behalf of the country, and you know, also to make lives better around the world so, so uh, the you tell us uh, tell us the title one more time that's the ambassadors america's diplomats on the front lines by paul richter great looking forward to reading it and that's our show next time shakespeare's comic turn continues with love's labors lost thanks for tuning into bard flies if you like the show please subscribe to us on itunes spotify or wherever you get your podcasts share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review you can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter or drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.